Welcome back to Bridging the Gap podcast. We have Matt Bounds, the cash fiend, sitting across from me. <laughs> I uh, give me a reputation, Dave. No, I was laughing on Sunday whenever you were saying about you just want money for Christmas. Like that's a great gift to be given. I was shaking my head because I was disgusted. But I think you were shaking. <laughs> you thought some people were shaking their heads in the sense of like. Yes, why is that not a yeah, great gift yeah. to receive? Well, that's what I assume, but that's my bias, I suppose. So why why would you just want... Because the, the illustration was 12 gifts you shouldn't... You never want to get at Christmas. Yeah. Why would you want to get money at Christmas? I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I do I do like having presents open on Christmas Day, but we, we have this conversation in the Bounds family sometimes. Like um, all the others, I think Kath and Sophia in particular, they just love having present no sorry kath and tom in particular love having presents to open hate the idea of knowing in advance what they're going to get like the surprise thing i'm like i I don't mind that much i like opening a present but if i know in advance what i'm getting brilliant Uh, if i have cash so i have flexibility to buy what i want even better you just want a briefcase full of (laughs) dollar bills that well why would you not want that for christmas instead that's what i don't get you see yeah, but I am coming across very materialistic now. I realise I'm happy if it's a five. I know. think I think my two cents is if it goes if I just get cash, it just goes into the bank account and then it's used to pay energy bills. Yeah, that's the danger, isn't it? Yeah, but what I immediately think, if I'm honest, what's going on in my head is cash equals books. So if I, I get the cash and it goes into the account, that ain't going on the energy bills. That's going on books if it's been a present for me. So, so do you want me to done. do you want me to post on the Bridge Church official account your Amazon wish list <laughs> so people don't have to send cash? This is to going you. in a really bad direction. This podcast has become all about my gifts. I also realised off the back of Sunday because a couple of people told me probably a good opportunity to say something about this on the podcast that having made the comment about wrinkle cream. Um, that a lot of people are probably thinking of getting me wrinkle cream. So, um, yeah, me said we have to get you wrinkle cream. <laughs> well, that's my worries. Like, if I get one or two pots of wrinkle cream, that, that'd be great. If I get 50 <laughs> of them, that's probably overkill. So, if you were thinking of getting me wrinkle cream, thank you for the thought. But, um, yeah, maybe coordinate with others to make sure I don't get too much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe I just need a lot of it, though. Yeah. Um, so, on to more serious things. Um, John the Baptist is mentioned in all four of the gospel accounts, which is, that's pretty significant. I don't think I mm. fully appreciated that because there's not many people who get mentioned no, that's right. all yeah. four of them. Um, why is he Why is he so important that he is mentioned in all four of the gospels? Yeah, I thought that was a good question. Um, and I kind of tried to answer it at a few le- levels, and I'm not sure which one to start with. So I'll, I'll just start here. I think one reason is that great kings uh had you know they had forerunners and, and heralds who came to prepare the way for them in those days still happens that way today i guess at, at a certain level and and of course jesus is the king of kings so we expect him to have a forerunner to prepare the way for him so that's at the one level that's why john the baptist is important um also john the baptist very symbolic in, in the sense that he's the last uh old covenant prophet i mean listen to these words from Luke 16, the law, this is Jesus speaking, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom has been preached. So the law and the prophets led up to John. In other words, he's basically the last old covenant prophet, which is important because it highlights that with Jesus comes the promised new covenant, which you can read about in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. So that's why he's important at another level. But I suppose the most straightforward answer is that he's important because 
God had decided and God had said through his prophets that he would send the forerunner, the way preparer to, to prepare the Messiah's way. And the gospel writers are all saying God did just as he promised, which is why it's so important. He's in the gospel accounts. Yeah. The Lord also said that of people born of women, John was the greatest. Yeah. um, Which is not a small title. No, so that's going beyond even saying, isn't it, that he's the last old covenant prophet. He's saying this is, but he's basically the greatest man who's ever lived. Yeah. Other than Jesus. Incredible. Um, Yeah. And I suppose as well, he's probably mentioned all four of the gospels because he lived like he was an actual historical person. Yeah. So there's continuity there. Mm. And I suppose even it's helpful. I imagine in the Jewish world, they would have heard a lot about John the Baptist. So, sort of tying Jesus to John the Baptist, yeah. them to each other was significant, wasn't it? Well, until, until Jesus himself started his public ministry, and John the Baptist was the, the guy. He was yeah. the one they were all talking about, wasn't he? He was the big dog. <laughs> um, so you talked about on Sunday how you know, there's no limit to God's giving in mm. the sense that he gave him he gave himself. Um, bit of a sneaky question, I feel this is, but... Can we ever exhaust his grace, you know, in the sense of there's no limit to his giving, but is there a limit to his grace? Like what mm. if we commit yeah. blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Right. That, that sort yeah. of. Um, yeah, it is kind of a sneaky question, Dave. Can we exhaust yeah. his grace? Because it's going to be one of those answers, which is in one sense, definitely no. In another sense, in another sense, yes, there is a limit. Um, so, yeah, in the sense that God has given his all in Christ, no, there is no limit to his giving in the sense that God never runs out of grace because he loses patience or because sinners are just too sinful. No, we cannot exhaust his grace. Um, in another sense, there's a limit, I guess, or maybe a distinction is a better word, in that not all people experience saving grace. Yeah. Uh, whatever your exact theology, that's obvious, isn't it, from Scripture and from life. Yeah. Um, the gospel is freely offered to all, but not everybody experiences saving grace. Mm. Um, but we need, here's the thing, I guess, here's what's at the heart of the question and my answer. We need never worry as we cry out for God to be gracious that one day he will run out of grace Yeah, because he won't. And as for blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and I know this is a huge subject area and we have touched on it in the past. I think that's essentially the same thing as you're seeing in the, the warning verses in Hebrews six, that it's speaking of someone who has never truly come to Christ speaking against him and his gospel to the point of hardening themselves so much that they can never be restored to repentance. Um, And they are fearsome words, but even in the face of fearsome warnings like that, the bottom line is coming back to God's grace. The person who is crying out to God for mercy does not need to fear. God promises to always respond to truly repentant and trusting souls. Yeah. I was reading this from Micah 7 yesterday. So Micah 7 18 and 19, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Mm. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into mm. the depths of the sea. So yeah. as sort of a, a summary of what you just said, like yeah. there's no limit to his grace and mercy. And that's thinking Old Testament that's also making me think of, you know, passages in Exodus, for example, where where God describes his own character and it does speak of his righteousness and judging sin. Yeah. But overwhelmingly the characteristics he describes himself with are compassionate, merciful, forgiving sin. And that's why we can be confident. Anybody fleeing to God in repentance, never need worry 
days, Grace will run out. So this next question is picking up on something you said on Sunday about how the Jews saw all these deeds and didn't believe. I suppose if someone was there on Sunday who isn't a Christian, they might think to themselves, well, I haven't seen mm. all these deeds. You know, I need God to show me that he ex- I need Jesus to show me that he exists. How can people who have not seen Jesus physically be expected to believe in him? Yeah, and I get people asking that question. I, th- I think I've asked myself that, or I've thought many times in the past. Yeah, but wouldn't it be wonderful to actually have been there physically seeing Jesus doing this? Uh, wouldn't it be so much easier to, to believe? Um, but I'm not sure that's the case. And I, I think I'd argue, actually, that we we have seen Jesus' deeds, not directly with our physical sight, but via the Spirit-inspired accounts of, of Scripture, of the Bible. And in some ways, that's actually better. I know we think like seeing is believing and we, <laughs> we love to see things with our physical eyes. But if you think about it, in the Bible, we have the events we need to see, not only described, but explained and yeah. interpreted by Jesus, by his apostles. Uh, and as we read in the, in the gospel accounts, actually, even people who did physically see the great works of Jesus didn't believe. Yeah. So many of them didn't believe in him. So seeing wonders right in front of your face isn't enough the holy spirit must apply the words of jesus and the message about jesus to a sinner's heart and he can do that for people today just as he did for people living in the days of jesus ministry so yeah we do see these deeds and we can believe in them through holy spirit inspired scripture yeah i think there's that incredible bit in matthew 28 right before the great commission uh 11 disciples went to galilee to the mountain where jesus had told them to go Mm. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So you're like, <laughs> yeah. people have seen the risen Lord Jesus with the scar marks in his hands, in his side. Yeah. And some doubted. So, Well, like going back to John the Baptist, who we were talking about at the top, you know, when he's in prison, he sends word to Jesus. And he, are, are you the one? Yeah. We, or should we be looking for someone else? So different interpretations of that passage. But I think that's showing that even John the Baptist, greatest man who's ever lived, last old covenant prophet, when he's in prison, he's struggling and doubting a bit too. And Jesus has to reassure him. And he'd seen it all and prepared the way for him. Yeah. Uh, the next question is, uh, I suppose people are having to imagine my mind, which is a scary place to be. But last week, I, <laughs> the last two weeks, I've done uh, a youth mental health first aid course. That's a bit of a mouthful. But in that, they talk a lot about trauma. Mm. And we use that word a lot in lots of different ways. Then. I think has been used in the past, but you said on Sunday, imagine the trauma it would have caused Jesus to be rejected mm. in this world. So does that mean in some sense that Jesus understands what what it's like to be traumatized? Yeah, I until you asked me that question, I didn't actually realize I'd used the word trauma. I don't think I'd kind of scripted that, if you like, mm. but um, though, though it, it was fine to use that word. Um, I think the other thing to say is before I launch into the answer that... Uh, we tend to use certain words these days in, in a particular way, maybe a fairly specialized way, um, and apply it quite broadly, words like trauma, words like harm. Yeah. Um, and I was using it in a more general sense. But I think the bottom line is we can say Jesus can understand trauma better than any person who has ever lived. Yeah. Not only because he is God who knows and understands all things, but because he's experienced trauma or suffering or pain, whichever words you want to use, um, as no other person ever has. Yeah. Um, and also because he, he has died to heal his people. You touched on this recently, not only from their sin, but ultimately from all sickness and pain and suffering. 
you know, in, including the full range of things that we would call trauma today. So people may have been traumatized, wounded yeah. by events, by people. Um, even that, through faith in Christ, ultimately will will be healed. Um, however hard it may be to get our heads around that. So, yeah, I think Jesus does completely understand. I mean, even even though the the best friend, the most specialized counselor, psychiatrist in the world, they, they can help so much with trauma, yeah. but they can't perfectly understand it or help. And Jesus ultimately can. I, f- I feel like in lots of different situations since we've been studying Hebrews, there've been lots of different things that have happened in life. And I'm like, keep coming back to that verse about having a high priest who's able to sympathize. Yeah. I keep coming back. Does that mean he un- like he sympathizes in this, in this, in this? Yeah. And the, the answer is always yes. But I think we're just filling out that sort of understanding of that verse as we go along. And, and we're not saying by, by saying this that um, Jesus as a human being experienced every single scenario of suffering and trauma that anybody on earth might experience. Yes, so you can say Jesus knows what it's like to stand on a brick of Lego because there's no Lego. Exactly. No, well, at least not through having directly experienced it, but, yeah. but, but he is so identified with being a human being because he is one and with the human condition and because his sufferings and if you, traumas, if you want to use that word, were literally the worst any human being has experienced in Gethsemane and on the cross. Yeah. Then, then I don't think we anybody can turn to Jesus and say, "Well, you don't get this." Yeah. Big because he does more than anybody else can. Yeah. Yeah, and he's it's that um, C.S. Lewis illustration, isn't it? Like he gets it more because he's gone full on into the temptation. And never, yeah. So temptation, for example. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. He's never quit. Never yeah. given up. Yeah. So you made a, a big point, a very helpful point about. Uh, receiving Jesus if someone's not a believer but how can someone who's been a Christian for 40 years receive Jesus this Christmas <laughs> does the question make sense yeah I think so um, well in one sense someone who's been a Christian for years and years uh, can't receive Jesus because they've already done that they, and they don't need to <laughs> <laughs> um, so once the dear Christ has entered in to use that phrase from the carol we don't have to keep being forgiven and keep being adopted it's done praise God uh, but of course, there is a sense in which there's always more of his grace, more of him, more of his love to be experienced. Um, and the whole Christian life anyway is one of constant faith and repentance, isn't it? We can certainly... John Calvin. Yeah, good old John. Um, we can certainly ask each Christmas time or any time that he come to our hearts afresh in that sense and fill us with his spirit. Yeah. But I, I guess what's lying underneath your question, I was quizzing you a bit off air, um, is... You know, what does it mean for us who've been Christians for years to experience Jesus afresh, to know more of him each Christmas? And I I think it's simply just making ourselves um, dwell on and think about the incarnation, sort of camp out in passages like John 1 that speak about the incarnation and just say, Lord, just, just show me afresh how awesome it is what you did this this greatest miracle in the history of the universe i'm gonna i'm gonna be trying to make that point on sunday that that's what the incarnation is just spend time thinking and praying about it and that um that is a way of by faith continuing to receive i think all that jesus has for us yeah we uh this morning we read uh we had been devotional by paul david tripp Mm. um and it was all about jesus being our substitute and uh initially was making a point about a substitute teacher and often when you think of a substitute teacher you think basically 
oh, rub your hands together because this is your <laughs> chance to, yeah, you know, destroy someone's soul as a pupil. But he says, you know, whenever we think about Jesus as our substitute, we need to remove those ideas of uh, someone who's not very good at their job or is just there yeah. to fill time. Yeah. And in that, as we read it, it just talked about how every single situation that Jesus faced in his life, he came as a substitute for us. And I, I suppose to linger back to the question, Susan, in some ways this morning reading that helped me receive Jesus afresh. Cause like, I know he's my substitute, yeah. but I understood it mm. again yeah, or experienced it again in a different way. And that also touches on something we, we regularly talk about why it's so good to, to get recommended and find good Christian books, because obviously they're, they're not as important and as powerful and as pure as scripture, but sometimes just by reading something that someone's written or, or listening to a sermon on it. Yeah. The Holy Spirit uses that to to open up his word afresh. Yeah. So reading Christian books and listening to good stuff is so important. So uh, you made a point on Sunday about people being unhappy with this phrase, receiving Jesus into your heart. Mm. Uh, <laughs> why do people have a bee in their bonnet about that? Well, obviously not many people in the bridge do, because when I said that, um, there, there were a few sort of gentle frowns around the room. Like, okay, what's the problem with that phrase? So maybe it's more just my experience and the stuff I listen to and some of the circles I've moved in in the past. But historically, there, there has been a bit of a bag, bit of baggage in some circles, I think, that went with that phrase, asking Jesus into your heart. Um, sometimes I guess it's because it's been used in a superficial way. It tends to be associated with, yeah, ask Jesus into your heart, make him your friend, yeah. without any talk about sin and judgment and salvation from sin and judgment. Yes, I see. So sometimes it's kind of been associated maybe with that. Um, and the, the fact is the primary way the Bible speaks of faith is by using words like faith and repentance yeah. um, and talks about us being in Christ. So that doesn't seem on the face of it to fit with asking Jesus into your heart. But if it's true, I mean, obviously this passage got me thinking about this. If it's true that believing is receiving um, if Paul can speak of Christ in you, the hope of glory, yeah. then I don't think asking Jesus into your heart or into your life is a bad phrase as long as it's properly explained and we understand it in context. Yeah. But the thing is, isn't it? Like there's come follow me, there's mm. receive me, there's a abide. Like as yeah. in there's lots of different phrases and words in the Bible to yeah. explain faith in christ and that's why i love that when when the bible talks about faith or talks about what our salvation is it usually uses lots of different pictures doesn't it so we yeah. get like a full orbed picture it doesn't use just one yeah see my my inclination whenever i hear that people aren't happy by that is oh, people just need to chill out um <laughs> dave is now going to be regularly using the phrase ask jesus into your heart just well, to well initially well that's, initially i'm like oh just chill out but then that that heart there of you know, wanting people to be clear on what the gospel is yeah. really matters. And mm. I feel that's something maybe to be in my bonnet, but sometimes people will be like, whenever they hear someone's testimony afterwards, they might say, oh, well, they didn't talk about, you know, repenting of their sins and, yeah. you know, Christ being their savior and their, you, you and can't their... say it all. Can you? Yeah. And, yeah. But I think, you know, if you hear someone's testimony and they are lacking, those bits that you think are really important, mm. go and chat to them afterwards and ask them yeah. about it yourself because, yeah. Yeah. It, we can, we yeah. can't get too picky as Christians, can't we? I mean, the other thing I suppose I should say in defense of sort of the other side of this is that sometimes I think one of the objections to that phrase, asking Jesus into your heart, is 
that there's this kind of a theology behind it sometimes that Christians, that reformed Christians, for example, wouldn't agree with. So, yeah. yes, I did ask Jesus into my life. Yes, I did come to faith. Yes, I did decide to follow him. But I think the Bible tells him ultimately. He knew me before the foundation of the world. <laughs> before the foundation of the world. And he'd done a work in my heart first. And I, I mean, for all I know, that was like nanoseconds before. But the point is, yeah. I only believe because he did the work in my heart. So yeah. sometimes people have understood the phrase that way. I'm the one who changes my heart. Yeah. Um, but I think it's pr sometimes just reading too much theology into a phrase that's just a simple phrase to talk about faith. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whenever I tell my testimony, I talk about how someone gave a talk on hell and that talk scared the hell out of me. Mm. But actually, God changed my heart. Yeah. Is is the reality. Yes. And someone might hear that and think, whoa, whoever did that talk on hell was the one who changed their heart. Mm. It, it wasn't, it was the Lord. Yeah. So uh, I got this question on Sunday. It made me laugh. Uh, whenever we read in John, uh, we read born of a husband's will. Mm. Is this just the Bible being sexist or patriarchal? <laughs> because um, one of the translations I read, it said uh, not of human decision or passion. Mm. So wh why does it say born of a husband's will? Yeah. Why does it not say husband and wife's will? I'm laughing only because you know you know I'm going to say no, that it's not being sexist or patriarchal Shock. in a bad way. But um, I do get people also ask, asking that question, especially maybe people who are, you know, relatively new to church, new to reading the Bible, because that does not fit with the way 21st century language yeah. um, is used. Um I mean, some commentators say that the thinking of in John's day was the the husband's will in in procreation mm. in conceiving was particularly decisive. That was the understanding in those days. Well, maybe maybe that figures into John's thinking a bit, um, but I don't believe the idea here is that the woman had no part or no say in things. Yeah, it's it's the way that language was used in those days in contrast to the way it's used yeah. today. Um, so roughly there's like an analogy I think with when the gospel writers um, and the New Testament writers speak of the brothers yeah and 99 percent of the time when they're talking about the brothers they they're implying brothers and sisters and that's how it would have been understood in those days yeah now in 21st century you'd be careful to write brothers and sisters yeah but people understood it in those days that that's what it meant um when Paul speaks of our adoption as sons, so when it speaks of adoption in the New Testament, the literal phrase is adoption as sons. Yeah. The point is that's not excluding daughters. No. It's just the way that language is used. In the idiom of the day, the point wasn't to exclude women at all. It was to un it was understood they were included in the language. And sometimes what we're doing is we're comparing 21st century terminology with 1st century terminology and with our set of cultural spectacles on, we're criticizing ancient writers because they don't use language the way that we do in the 21st century. And yeah. that's just anachronistic. Um, or we think that they meant bad things <laughs> that someone today would mean if they used the same language. And that's anachronistic too. So um, th that's not to deny that there was then, and there is today, patriarchy in a harmful sense. Absolutely there can be. Yeah. But certainly when it comes to the inspired writings of scripture, we can be confident they weren't being patriarchal or sexist, um, but were simply using the accepted language of their day that needs yeah. to be understood in its context and in its setting. Yeah, because if he had written, yeah, if he had written it with 21st century terminology, it wouldn't have made any sense to no. his original readers. Yeah. I suppose that adoption of sons, 
that phrase would would mean so much more to them. Like adoption as daughters in that day would have been worse because of the the culture. Yeah. So that again, that's an interesting one because it's adoption as sons was was pretty much in Greek Roman society. It was like it was like a technical phrase. Yeah. So they would have understood that phrase. Ah, oh, I know what he's talking about there. Yeah. And that was because in in the Roman world, for example, more often adoption was of adult males to, to carry on the family heirs. line. Yeah. But the readers, the hearers, would have understood this applied to us means that we are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. Yeah. They would I don't think they've had a problem with the terminology like we might now. Yeah. But then just as a side point, you read in Matthew's gospel, the genealogy of Jesus. Mm. Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Yeah. So in Matthew one, it says that you know Jesus you would expect to say Jesus the son of Joseph, but it says no, he's the son of Mary. So Yeah. You need to read the whole Bible in summary. Yes, and 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 that's where the New Testament. Um, we we might not see it clearly enough because we kind of expect it, but it was, it was radical in its day. Talking about the you know, the female followers of Jesus, the, yeah. the female characters in the Book of Acts, it, it's clear in context that the this terminology doesn't exclude. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, last question. So you did the napoleon illustration <laughs> uh and again yeah I'm, I'm laughing for a reason there as well but carry on i'm yeah. being a melter um melter yeah oh that was good that was good for you uh so the Still think it's better than your welsh accent but there you go my welsh accent is amazing <laughs> <laughs> so i'll take that back um so the napoleon <laughs> illustration to get to the question i can sort of see it both ways and i'm being annoying so the soldier did something hmm. to become the what was it captain captain yeah like we take hold of the promises of faith yeah but how can someone misunderstand that illustration yeah. good opportunity for me to try and justify my ropey illustration because <laughs> i i had as i will mention in a moment i had a kind of another um objection about that uh um, that illustration from someone fairly close to home, and, and again, I, I got why. So it is a good chance to clarify. I, um, and just to be clear, I love illustrations. Yeah. I'm being annoying. Well, it's, it's something we've studied recently, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, in reading the book on preaching that we're reading, that they're, they're so helpful, but there's there's always flaws to them and potential dangers with any illustration or analogy. Yeah, like the GP uh, membership illustration on Sunday. Mm, yeah. So, um, the main point of the illustration. Which, incidentally, uh, he says in his defence, I pinched from James Montgomery Boyce. I mean, I'd heard the story before. I'll I take think. It up with him. Yeah, <laughs> you have to wait till you get to glory. He died some years ago. Oh, um, oh, no. <laughs> but the main point of that illustration oh. was that <laughs> I got him there. Uh, Napoleon's declaration about that corporal now being a captain. Um, that that declaration worked because Napoleon had the power to declare that. Yeah, the authority. Yeah. So the point wasn't that when we believe in Jesus, we now have earned it or deserve the new status we have far from it. In the passage, it's clear that it's ultimately all of God. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, of course, the illustration could be misunderstood that way. And the other objection I had to it, objection might be a slightly strong word, query, Kath actually didn't particularly like it because, of course, Napoleon was far from a perfect man, you know? Yeah. Um, he he was, yeah. I mean, he he was a conquering general and he did some did and organized some pretty horrendous things. Yeah. But hopefully it was clear that the point wasn't to equate a sinner like Napoleon with the Lord Jesus. The focus was on the reality that in some earthly circumstances, 
the right person has the authority to change a person's status and in an infinitely more glorious way that's what jesus has done for us but yeah of course it's once you're using particular historical figures yeah um and in, and they in any way are sort of in the position of yeah. jesus or the lord that then there's there's a potential flaw in that illustration and we should definitely be careful but hopefully that kind of that shows where the main focus in that illustration was meant to be yeah as i said i was being a melter i just wanted to <laughs> No, it's, it's good. It's important to ask, isn't it? Because that's where people can. We can all focus on. The, it's like when people try and illustrate the Trinity. Yeah. I mean, you can argue sometimes. I think it's best to avoid analogies altogether. But they're they're always going to be potentially problematic and heretical. Yeah. If you read into the wrong details, I guess. Yeah. Great. Uh, I am at Malpas Road this Sunday. Nice. Uh, you Say are, hi from us. You are carrying on John one. Yep. Uh, and that's all we have to say about that. Yeah, and then uh, the week after, we are, that's our Carols by Candlelight. Yep. Um, yeah, it's all happening fast. Amazing. Good stuff. See you later. <laughs> See ya.